I don't know if you knew this, but the world of podcasting is massive. Hi, I'm Leah. I'm the host of CBC's Podcast Playlist. There is such a constant avalanche of new releases, it can be hard to keep up. Luckily, Podcast Playlist can help. Every week, we deep dive into the podcast world to find the most compelling stories. And every month, we'll give you a sneak peek into the hottest new releases so you can stay ahead. Tune in to Podcast Playlist on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. Jason and the Argonauts, the classic story of an epic voyage that has been told and retold since the birth of Western civilization. The ancient Greek story of Jason and the Argonauts is the story of a quest, and one of the first ever told. A man, a ship, and a team of sailors, all in search of a miracle. And where will you find this miracle? I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world, with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. Jason also shows up centuries later in Dante's Divine Comedy, and centuries after that in the 1800s in a poem by William Morris and a story by Nathaniel Hawthorne. And he sets out on this fantastic voyage by sea to get the Golden Fleece. Which his uncle says if he manages to get it and brings it back, then he'll be able to take his rightful place as king. But unfortunately, it was guarded by a horrible, toxic, fire-breathing dragon. Coiled around a tree in a dark forest. Now, tell me your name. Medea. And you can answer my first question. Who are you? My name is Jason. You may have encountered Jason and the Argonauts before, or Medea. If you've ever had the TV on late at night, any time in, oh, the last 50 years, to see the classic 1963 movie adaptation with its iconic animated monsters. Jason and his band of Argonauts, the mightiest warriors the world of adventure has ever known, battling the army of skeletons sword-fighting skeletons, a bronze statue that comes to life and attacks the Argonauts. Kill, kill, kill them all! Medea, the temple dancer, mysterious, exciting, and exotic. And in the play by Euripides, she's a cold-hearted killer. Oh, arm yourself in steel, my heart. Come, my hand, and take the sword. The story of Jason and Medea is an adventure tale. But it's also got to be the worst marriage ever. With the help of God and Hecate, it is a marriage that you will regret. He's taken everything from her by disrespecting their marriage, and so she has to take everything from him. I want no happy fortune that brings pain. But you have got from me more than you gave. You have broken your word to me. Like almost all Greek tragedies, it ends up as a horror story. And you just can't look away. Contributor Tom Jokinen brings us his documentary called Worst Marriage Ever, the story of Jason and Medea. Where have you come from? Thessaly. But that's the other side of the world. You don't look like a merchant. Are you a priestess? 
I can't help when I imagine those parts of the myth. I'm doing it with the 1963 classic film in mind. That's how I encountered this story. Me too. I've seen it more than 10 times for sure. It has the famous stop-action animation by Ray Harryhausen. I can still see those creepy skeletons. They've got swords and shields, and they're trying to kill Jason. If you've watched that, it's very difficult to unthink it. Revenge yourself against the Thessalians! They're sort of fantastical in this adventure into unknown lands. Deliver to me the children of the Hydra's teeth! My name is Rosie Wiles. I'm Senior Lecturer in Classical History and Literature at the University of Kent in the UK. Some people say Casablanca or Citizen Kane. I say Jason and the Argonauts is the greatest film ever made. Tom Hanks at the Oscars in 1992, when animator Ray Harryhausen was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. When Ray's films were released, he would often be criticised for reinterpreting the classic myths and having them boiled down into these 90-minute films. And some people say, you're getting it wrong, you're sabotaging the original mythology. Jason, now listen to me. The gods have ordered me to tell you whatever you want to know. But the gods have gone too far with me. But nowadays, so many people say to us that they grew up on race films and then became a classicist or archaeologist or, or all of these different academic fields. And the, the link is always, oh, I, I watched Jason and the Argonauts when I was young and I got hooked. I'm Connor Heaney and I'm the collections manager for the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. He loved mythology any kind of mythology. And I think he wanted to carry that through and thought it'd be great. Like we used to read the Iliad of Homer a lot at home. When do we sail? Tomorrow. I think that's what inspired him, especially with Jason. He managed to put it together in such a wonderful fashion that we all believed it. I'm Vanessa Harryhausen. I'm Ray Harryhausen's daughter, and I live in Scotland. So there's the movie, which takes a few Hollywood liberties, and then there's the ancient Greek myth, as told by Apollonius of Rhodes in his epic poem called the Argonautica, dating back to the 3rd century BC. The ancient myth of Jason is one of a whole cluster of stories about how a young man who's heir to a throne is frustrated by an evil older relative in his attempts to simply succeed to his own throne. The people need more than a leader. They must believe the gods have not deserted them. They need a miracle. And where will you find this miracle? My name's Edith Hall. I'm professor of classics at the University of Durham in Northern England. The quest he ends up going on with the Argonauts is to modern-day Georgia, but the journey is far from easy. Which was to go to the far end of the Black Sea and bring back a Greek magical object, which was a sheep's fleece made entirely of gold. I have heard there is a tree at the end of the world with a fleece of gold hanging in its branches. I have heard this too. So have many men. They say it is a gift of the gods. Jason, importantly, isn't from Athens. He's from an area in North Greece in the kingdom Iolcus, and he loses his kingdom to his uncle Pelias, who takes the throne from his father. And so this is a story about redemption. This is getting back what you're owed, a story of coming of age. First, search for this golden fleece. Do not reveal yourself to Pelias, but build a ship and find a crew. And when you have this prize, then 
and only then return and kill Pelias. It's like in Merry Fairy Tales, sending out a hero to kill a dragon. He's not supposed to be able to do it. If I could find this prize and bring it home to Thessaly, then it would inspire the people, wipe out the years of misrule. They would know that the gods have not abandoned them. My name is Florence Yoon, and I'm Associate Professor of Greek at the University of British Columbia. So this is a narrative that may seem very familiar. A young man off on an adventure, trying to achieve the unachievable. And of course, he's going to win. My name is Dr. Lucy Jackson, and I'm an assistant professor in ancient Greek literature at Durham University in the UK. So what happens on the trip? This, the, he puts together this team called the Argonauts, right? So Jason puts together a team of some of the most extraordinary heroes uh, in ancient Greece. He's got Heracles, who's the, the alpha male who, who can wrestle with any adversary. He's got Telamon, who's Heracles' best friend, who is one of the strongest men in Greece. He's king of Salamis. He's got Orpheus to provide them with music. I mean, you just get the best bard in Greece. So they sail off and they have some adventures on the way including stopping in on, on the island of Lemnos, where they had some um, liaisons with the ladies, and in Heracles' case, with one of the young men there. We set sail. He had to face clashing rocks. He had to face and fight mythical creatures. Get forward there! What is it you want to know? The way to Colchis. The way to Colchis is through the clashing rocks. These are rocks that keep on coming together, and no ship had been able to pass through them except the Argo, thanks to the help of Athena and to their great pilot, Tiffys. Steer northwest and you'll reach them in five days. Northwest, eh? My name is James Claus. I'm a professor of classics at the University of Washington. After the clashing rocks, you turn northeast. Before long, you'll sight the shores of Colchis. But tell me, what gods protect you? None now. And you won't pass the clashing rocks. John Kearney played Hylas in the 1963 film and spoke to Connor Heaney in a podcast in April 2017. It's funny, the film has attained an iconic status that has nothing to do with its artistic ability. It's the actual honesty of the nonsense in it and the falsity of models and the falsity of monsters and the falsity of actors but nonetheless being taken quite seriously. The false monsters were in fact models built by Ray Harryhausen. The actors never saw them, of course. They were filmed separately and then edited into the scenes later. The actors had to pretend to see them and carry out action sequences alone in a kind of pantomime. Had to be crushed by a bloomin' giant who was invisible, who existed in the sky according to a clock face given me by Ray Harryhausen. The clock face was the giant's head at 12 o'clock and his feet at 6 o'clock and his arms at 3 o'clock and 9 o'clock. And they called out a number and I looked in that direction as I ran along a beach and then appropriately fell flat in my face. The Argonauts battling vulturous harpies. There was I, a working actor of a minor distinction, and all I had to do was fall flat in my face in the sand. One man defying a universe of mortal and immortal danger. 
Jason and the Argonauts. Number 63 was a much less sophisticated age than today. And Harryhausen was almost aeons ahead of his time. That's where we couldn't appreciate it. We were accommodating a good man who seemed to know what he was talking about. A rare event in film. And he always said, you know, you've got to bring the child out and these actors to believe and pretend and really think that you're fighting these creatures. And he did it. It worked because they're still talking about that film today. Is there any man here who does not obey the gods? We will do as the goddess here commands, if she will speak to us. This is your last chance, Jason. <gasps> then know this, Argonauts. Hylas is dead. Hylas is dead. As for Hercules, he is not fated to go further with the Argo. Zeus has other tasks for him. And for us, Hera? Sail to Phrygia. Seek out Phineas, the blinded man. Only he can guide you now. And the Argo sails on to the Black Sea, to Colchis. of the Black Sea in the Greek imagination, that probably wasn't historically true at all, but in the Greek imagination, were always very xenophobic and always wanted to do things like human sacrifice if visitors turned up on their shores. So King Iates, he's actually son of the sun, he's son of Helios. These Colchians all have these flashing eyes like the sun and flashing white teeth. So he decided he wanted rid of this horrible young Greek. He may well have been worried he was going to run away with his daughter, who had very valuable magical powers. The goddess Hecate has spoken. There will be one among us today from the ends of the world. So he sails up there and he does indeed manage to get the Golden Fleece, but only by getting the help of the extremely discontented princess royal of the house, the palace, the kingdom of Colchis, as it was then called, whose wicked father, Iates, seems to be just as much of a problem to Jason as Peleus had been. Rise up, you dead slain of the Hydra. Rise from your graves and avenge us. Those who steal the Golden Fleece must die. In 2014, archaeologists found evidence of ancient gold mining in the Republic of Georgia. They say villagers would use sheep's fleece to line the sandy riverbeds in order to collect gold dust, like a filter, and the fleece would glitter with gold. This, they said, could have been the prize at the end of Jason's journey, the Golden Fleece. In the Apollonius tale, the fleece hangs from a tree. But unfortunately, it was guarded by a horrible, toxic, fire-breathing dragon. Get the fleece. The only reason he managed all of this, of course, was that by then, Medea, Princess of Colchis, had already fallen madly in love. But then 
they've actually got to get the fleece. There's no point in him going back to Greece to claim his throne if he hasn't got the condition on which he was sent off to get the throne. So she helps him. And the way she does that is that she hypnotises the dragon. There's an incredible scene in a poet called Apollonius who wrote a long epic about the Argonauts where she actually sings sort of soothing lullabies and chants to him. which means that Jason can just whip the fleece off the tree and they jumped on board and off they sailed. Someone's rocking my dream home Someone's invading my dream we were sailing along, so peaceful and calm. Suddenly, something went wrong. In the 1963 film, Medea isn't much more than Jason's trophy wife. It's really his movie. But in the myth, she's something else altogether. She's stronger. She's dangerous. All at once a storm blew us apart and left me drifting alone. Someone's rocking my dream. What does the myth tell people about what Medea is about? Because here we've got somebody who's local who throws it all away to go off on a whim, basically, with a, with a stranger, a foreigner, right? It depends how you sort of read ancient sources. Her father is very unpleasant and very tyrannical. A lot of stress is always put in surprisingly modern sounding ways on the difficulties of being a very able woman, very talented, very intelligent in any system where you had no outlet for that. Euripides, Apollonius, all the people who write about Medea stress that. One has to read the myth of Medea in the context of Greek imperialism and colonialism in the Black Sea. This is the sort of story that arises when one country is expanding massively into other territory. The Greeks were building cities, including the Athenians, all around the Black Sea, way back in the Bronze Age. They were founding these cities and they did indeed get sheep from there. They did indeed get wool from there, like fleece. And they absolutely got gold, both mined and alluvial. But of course, Greek men, they would go off on these ships with no women in them. And the Greeks did. They intermarried wherever they went. They tended to move into these towns on the Black Sea they founded and marry the local population. So the idea that you bring back a beautiful woman from the Black Sea was not in itself particularly strange. That's the sort of positive side that you go and you have your, 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 your romantic orientalizing sexual encounters in the East. But the flip side of that is you're absolutely terrified of these people um, because they're your enemy. You often have to fight them. A lot of people never come back alive from the Black Sea. There are shipwrecks. There are kidnappings. There are abductions. Uh, there are ambushes by native tribes. So her terrifying personality kind of has that double thing, the allure of the richness, the riches that you could acquire and the sexual adventures, but the danger and the fear and the terror and the destruction as well. 
The tale by Apollonius of Rhodes ends with the Argonauts' narrow escape from Colchis with the fleece. The Colchians give chase, led by Medea's brother. Medea kills him, cuts his body up, and scatters the pieces in the water behind the Argo as they sail away. She's now betrayed her own home and family to help Jason get away. But it's in the play, Medea by Euripides, where the story takes its darkest turn. Euripides' play of Medea covers a very particular episode and a crucial moment in the partnership of Medea and Jason. In the play, Medea and Jason are married with two children, boys. And before long, Jason has his eye on another woman. And we see the impact of this on Medea, a formidable woman who has sacrificed a great deal for Jason. The play itself is staged in 431 BC. So in terms of where we are in historical context, we're on the brink of the Peloponnesian War, which was a battle between Greek states. And Corinth is the setting for the play. Jason and Medea are in Corinth, having come back from Colchis. Corinth is a very rich mercantile seafaring town on the north of the Peloponnese Peninsula and famed for its decadence as a port city, it's a sort of party city. You go there, you know, to have a good night out. He manages to ingratiate himself and he finds out that the king, Creon, has a marriageable daughter and no sons. So if he marries the marriageable daughter, he will get to be the successor to King Creon in Corinth. So he will finally get the Greek kingdom he always felt he deserved. The only problem here is what to do with Medea. So you have the nurse at the opening of the play summarising. I wish the Argo never had reached the land of Colchis. I wish that the Argo had never arrived at the land of Colchis. Nor ever had fallen in the glades of Pelion the smitten fir tree to furnish oars for the hands of heroes who in Peleus' name attempted the golden fleece. What a radical thing to say about this myth, which is all about the heroic feat. So we know of Jason, what he's achieved, but actually we know that from that outset, we're going to see a different angle. So in the Euripides play, Jason and Medea have returned from this fantastic voyage. And the play begins with a situation in which Medea has been told that Jason is going to remarry. Deserting his own children and my mistress, Jason has taken a royal wife to his bed, the daughter of the ruler of this land. Poor Medea is slighted. That Jason is going to marry the daughter of the king of Corinth and that she is being set aside. She gave pleasure to the people of her land of exile and she herself helped Jason in every way. But now, hatred everywhere. Not only is she going to be essentially divorced, but she is going to be sent in exile. And this in the Greek world is a very terrible fate because she has no resources. She can't go home, that's for sure. She has burned all her bridges at home. You have a woman who's done every single thing that she could for Jason, things that were really vile. And now the person who she supported so is ditching her. What kind of character, what what kind of person is Medea as we as we meet her? She's an ever-shifting character. I think it's part of what makes her, her so compelling. I think it's enjoyably complex presentation that you get for the Medea. And when we first meet her, 
She's not even on stage. She's a voice crying out from backstage. I pity you, poor creature. How can your children share in their father's wickedness? And the play by Euripides opens with Medea outside lamenting her abandonment by the husband she loved so much and for whom she had done so much. I mean, she'd left home and family, fallen into a life of crime, all out of loyalty to this man. And in that regard, she's vastly superior to him in terms of fidelity, sticking by the plan, sticking by the promises. But this betrayal has broken my heart. And the first half of the play by Euripides actually wins us over. You know, she, he has been an absolute hypocritical pig of a husband. Medea, I order you to leave my territories in exile. Has abandoned her the minute a better opportunity came along. Now I'm in the full force of the storm of hate. You're listening to the documentary Worst Marriage Ever, the story of Jason and Medea by contributor Tom Jokinen. Ideas is heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. The past is shrouded in mystery. To understand it, you have to get up close. Something happened to our collective psyche after the atom bomb. On NPR's Throughline, we reopen stories from the past to find clues to the present. Find Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The Euripides play turns the myth of Medea and Jason and the famous quest for the Golden Fleece into a domestic drama with a tragic outcome, just the way the ancient Greeks liked it. I heard a shriek that was laden with sorrow. Thrilling out her hard grief. And so the story begins with Medea in this really impossible situation. And she enlists the support of the women of Corinth, who are appearing as a chorus in this play. She cries out upon him who betrayed both her bed and her marriage. Wronged, she calls on the gods, on the justice of Zeus, and the oath sworn which brought her away to the opposite shore of the Greeks. Through the gloomy salt straits. To the gateway of the salty, unlimited sea. Now, before she's even had her formal entrance onto the stage, out into the playing space, she's already causing chaos. This is the end. Now I'm in the full force of the storm of hate. And then... Men say we have a peaceful time living at home. When she does come out... While they do the fighting in war... She's fully in control. How wrong they are. I would rather stand three times in the front line of battle than bear one child. And she's able to make this very measured, highly manipulative speech to get them to agree to keep silent about what she's planning. I have no father or brother nor any friend with whom I can take refuge in this sea of woe. But this much I beg of you. If I can avenge this wrong, keep silent. 
This I will promise. You are in the right, Medea. Enter Jason. Jason, it is Jason. What follows is a scene of both passive aggression and plain old aggression, and any trace of the love hatched in Colchis under the potent conditions of magic and danger has now completely disappeared. This is not the first time. I have seen it before, how hopeless it is to deal with your stubborn temper. I bear no malice toward you. You. I saved your life. And every Greek knows I saved it who was a shipmate of yours aboard the Argo. First, when you were sent to yoke the bulls that breathed fire. Then when you sowed that deadly field. And then the snake who never slept and encircled with his many folds the golden fleece you sought. I killed. You have broken your word to me. Why is there no mark engraved upon men's bodies by which we can know the true from the false? Medea, I shall not answer you in kind. But like a man who has a good grip of the tiller, reef up my sail and so run away from under this mouthing tempest of your bitter tongue. They have big row on stage, which it sounds so modern because it's, it's like any modern divorcing couple. They've got two little boys who are always around as well. It's very disturbing children of these splitting up parents. When I arrived here from the land of Iolcus, what luckier chance could I have come upon than this? An exile to marry the daughter of the king. It was not that I grew tired of your bed and felt the need of a new bride, nor with any wish to outdo your number of children. I am quite content. But this was the main reason that we might live well, that I might bring my children up worthily, and by producing more to be brothers of yours, we would draw the families together and all be happy. And he actually has the gall to say, I'm doing it for you, darling. It'll improve all of our position in Corinth. You need no more children, and I may do good to those I have now by having others. Can you think this a bad plan? You can stay here. And just be a good girl, keep quiet, lie low, look after the children, I'll come and see you sometimes. I want no happy fortune that brings pain with it. Do not consider painful what is good for you. Cease your anger and you will profit. I shall never accept the favours of your friends, nor take anything from you. Then I call the gods to witness that I wish to help you and the children in every way, but you refused. No! Enjoy your life! But perhaps, with the help of God and Hecate, it is a marriage that you will regret. So he goes off, leaves Medea, gets married. Medea is far too proud and far too rebellious and far too aware of her own worth to take that. So she not only manages to kill the love rival by sending a poisoned wedding dress and tiara, but she then decides that the way to hurt her husband most is to kill their children. My task is fixed. To kill my children and leave this land. Force every way now will have it. They must die. And since this must be so, I, their mother, shall kill them. And she realises the way that she can truly 
truly hurt Jason is to deprive him of the thing that he loves the most in all the world, his children. Because that is the most painful thing that she can do to Jason. That is the reason she gives, is what is the maximum pain I can inflict on this man? And she has this moment of indecision where she thinks, Oh, my children. I can't do this. Why, children, do you look upon me? She looks at her children and she... Why do you smile so sweetly, that last smile of all? No, no, I will not do it. She feels their skin and she smells their smell and she thinks, I can't, I can't do this. Why would I do this? Ah, what is wrong with me? There is something specific in the ancient Greek codes of morality and of heroism, which makes it absolutely unbearable to be laughed at and to be shamed. Will I let my enemies go unhurt and be laughed at? I mean, the line is there in the play. The line saying that she, she can't be laughed at. Children come into the house. By hell's avenging furies, it shall not be. This shall never be. That I should suffer my children to be the prey of my enemies. Give your mother your hands to kiss. She really decides that her hatred for Jason is more important than her love for her children or really her love for herself. The perhaps more arcane sounding context for the Medea myth certainly still applies now. The extent that people will go to to preserve their honor if slighted. And in a way, she sacrifices all her human ties for this desire for revenge. You said there's sympathy for Medea at the beginning. What is Euripides telling his audience with this move? You know, transgressing an ultimate taboo, a mother killing her children in order to get back at her husband. Euripides is saying more than one thing. He's a very complicated playwright. One thing he's definitely saying is if you abandon a woman who is known to be capable of murder then you don't leave her unsupervised with your children. I think it's actually quite a simple, practical lesson. And I've done a lot of research into filicidal parents. Filicide is the technical term if you kill your own children. A Miami mother facing murder charges. At noon, a mother under arrest accused of the unthinkable killing her two children. And it almost always happens in exactly the situation Euripides describes in this play. It's quite extraordinary. The mother arrested over the weekend in the death of her three children could make her first court appearance today. Happens within the first two weeks of the split. Gruesome new details in the case against a mother accused of killing her children. The parent who's left alone is usually faced with sexual jealousy as well, but there's the person has left for someone else. People go demented in these circumstances. Abandon women like this at your peril. I, I genuinely believe that. She took out a weeping knife, holy and lonely. There she took those sweet babes' life down by the Greenwood side. The Greenwood side, also called the Cruel Mother, is an English murder ballad about a mother who kills her two children. 
sung here by Ian and Sylvia from the album Four Strong Winds. She wiped the blade against her shoe on a and lonely more she rubbed the redder it grew down by the greenwood side Bob Dylan once wrote that the oldest American folk songs told of, quote, debauched bootleggers, Cadillacs that only got five miles to the gallon, floods, union hall fires, darkness, cadavers at the bottom of the river, and mothers that drowned their own children. Was down in Mississippi, not so long ago. The Medea story just won't go away. It gets told again and again. And Dylan's point is that America fails when it refuses to face up to its own violent past, to look at it, to confront its own sin. The obligation to face up to our sins. Euripides is asking the same thing of his audience. There is room to hate Medea. There is room to admire her. There is room to understand her or not. And I think that that range of responses is absolutely part of what almost all art forms aim at, but particularly theatre. The other thing is that she regards herself as an agent of the justice of Zeus. You know, the sanctity surrounding ritual things like a ritual oath meant that people genuinely believed that if you broke them, Zeus would blast you with a thunderbolt. That's how the Greeks felt. So although she does something terrible, and it is terrible, and Euripides goes out of his way, you know, we have the little boy's voices screaming from inside. Do you hear the cry? Do you hear the children's cry? Oh, you heard! Mummy, don't go, you know, mummy, put down your sword. Mummy, it's it's, it's a terrible moment. But because... By that time, she's actually convinced us that she's some sort of almost divine agent of divine justice. That also takes some of the sting out of it. She turns into a theological, providential agent rather than just a wronged wife. And I think Euripides absolutely is not telling you how you have to respond to her, right? Is, you know, like many forms of art, showing you this and provoking unemotional response, but not dictating a particular emotional response. I mean, the big question, of course, now (laughs) over 2,000 years old, that keeps being asked is why does she make that decision? You can see the logic in its its twisted way of killing the king and the new bride and, and the spouse who's wronged her. Then the move to the, to taking the children, the question that's, that's, never gone away is why does she do it? So why does she do it? It's very tempting, I think, to start psychologizing and think, well, she's given up everything for Jason. This is everything that she's given to him, their sons, and he's taken everything from her by disrespecting their marriage, and so she has to take everything from him. I think part of why it's an ongoing question is because it, that's not good enough. But, you know, it it doesn't justify it.
What I find more intriguing was thanks to Friedrich Nietzsche in his book, Beyond Good and Evil, what Euripides was imagining here, possibly. By killing her children, Medea had in some sense become like a god because the gods lived beyond good and evil, not subject to morality. And she had done something so horrific and so unthinkable from a mortal perspective that it raised her to a status that was beyond our imagination. It's a matter of mental gymnastics, a very human trait of rationalizing. Oh, she's a goddess. She plays by different rules. She kills just as Abraham was prepared to kill Isaac for a higher reason. There must be a reasonable explanation, a moral justification. So people concocted all kinds of ways of evading the full force of Euripides, where, of course, just before she goes in to do it, she says loud and clear, just in case any of you are thinking I'm mad. I know what I'm going to do is wrong, but my ability to take rational decisions has been overcome by my thumos. Now, thumos means your temper, your seat of emotions, your heart. This is the line from the Euripides play. I know the full horror, says Medea, of what I am about to do. But anger, the spring of all life's horrors, masters my resolve. So this is fascinating because it's not actual madness. I am absolutely aware this is a wrong action and I'm incapable of controlling myself despite that knowledge because I'm so angry. Oh, arm yourself in steel, my heart. Come, my hand, and take the sword. Do not think of them. Do not remember now that you are their mother. This is Maria Callas in the role of Medea in the Cherubini opera of the same name at Teatro alla Scala from 1958. The first time she played Medea, she learned the role in a week, and then she lived it for the rest of her life, up to and including the 1968 film Medea by Pier Paolo Pasolini, in which she played the starring role. What we are trying, I may say, is to find the human part of her, Medea. A woman, with all the experiences of a woman, even more so. Everything is bigger. But it was the opera that first brought together the singer and the character from the myth. When I think of Callas as Medea in the opera especially, I think of the opera coinciding with the key points of her personal life. And it was also the beginning of the end of her opera career, for it was in Medea in 1962 that her voice cracked. So I'm interested in the way Medea, the mythical figure, runs in parallel to Callas, the woman. My name is Lindsay Spence, and I'm the author of Casta Diva, The Hidden Life of Maria Callas. And obviously in terms of the opera as well, she always said when she played Medea, Medea wasn't born to be a woman. She betrayed herself by trying to be a woman. She was actually a witch. And I think that speaks to Maria herself when she said, there are two people in me. There is Maria and there is Callis. And it's always a fight for supremacy who's going to win. 
And I think she felt that with Medea as well. Is she Medea the woman or is she Medea the witch? I was dying to ask a question. I was trying to think how to ask it. The gentleman, Aristotle Onassis, is a, a mutual friend. He's a good friend and I think he's a delightful man. And I wondered what you thought were his greatest qualities. Oh, you can ask. We're the finest of friends. I've always said that. And uh, I'm quite sure that uh, he considers me his best friend. And that's a lot in life. Maria Callas on The David Frost Show in 1970. And I think in Venice, we became fine friends. And we've stayed and we will be. Fine. All our lives, we hope. Maria Callas and Aristotle Onassis a real-world Jason and Medea. He was a Greek billionaire, and she was the most famous Greek woman in the world. And Onassis thought the two greatest Greeks in the world should get together. And he really, I guess today we would say he stalked her. He followed her from 1957 until 1959. And it was when she was performing in Medea in London. He bought nearly all of the tickets so he could bring himself and his friends. And he put a party on for her, and he invited her on a cruise. And of course, on that cruise in 1959, they started their infamous love affair. Do you think that that's sort of her experience was to was to actually live the character of Medea? In terms of, I think, of how the public perceive her, they see this woman suffering for love and never having the children that she wanted and just doing everything to please the men, particularly Onassis in her life. He identified with Greek mythology. When you have that as your alter ego, you know, you're going to clash. Have you talked to Mr. Onassis? I hope I see all my friends. Do you expect to see Mr. Onassis when you go to Europe? I hope I see all my friends, and I hope I see Mr. Onassis. Why not? Uh -huh. Do you deny these I am answering no more questions. That's all, gentlemen. That's really what happened, and that's why I find it quite interesting when she portrayed Medea, the way it coincided with the key moments of her life. And what happened with the relationship? He dumps her, basically, right? Yes, she thinks that they're going to get married. She thinks, you know, he will devote himself to her. They will have children. She will be his one and only. But he has such a huge ego. He just collects these famous, brilliant women. And once he conquered Callus, he was on to other people. And he eventually got with Jacqueline Kennedy, not because he loved her in any way, but because she was another trophy to show off. And Maria said, you know, Jacqueline might be younger thinner, prettier, but he loves me. He'll always come back to me. But sadly for Maria, that didn't happen. I'm sorry. I can't talk. When are you going to be going there? Maybe this afternoon on the jet. How do you feel about the court litigation that's coming up? I'm giving no interviews. And behind her back, he married Jacqueline Kennedy. I said, don't. I'm not answering any interview. Now stop it. It reminds me of a quote from the story itself when she says, my love for you was greater than my wisdom. For me, it sums up the way she felt about Onassis was the way Medea felt about Jason.
the hook on the Medea story obviously is the revenge that Medea takes on Jason. Is there a sense of revenge on men like Onassis that Callus seeks? Is there any sort of parallel on that uh, that idea of revenge? So after Onassis married Jacqueline Kennedy, Maria Callus wrote lots of letters to her her closest friends, and. In every letter, there is this hysterical element of revenge, almost as if she's channeling Medea. She will say, they will pay for this. The gods will make them suffer. You wait and see. I will be victorious. And it's almost like when Medea is screaming at her husband before she kills her children, and then she does kill her children, you know, he will pay. She kills to make him suffer. But I don't think Maria herself was like that. I think when she was hurt and she had suffered her betrayal, she went into hiding mostly and she just, she self-destructed. So she sacrificed herself. So not the children, but herself, because there are no children, but she sacrifices herself. Yes, she becomes addicted to pills. Her health suffers. She can't see any logic in living anymore. And obviously she dies young. And to me, she self-destructed. You hope a lot. Maybe it's my fault. I put a man on a pedestal. And uh, I hoped a lot. And I probably was disappointed. And probably was my fault. I thought that when I met a, a man I loved, uh, that I didn't need to sing. And I have integrity, which is a very expensive, uh, using Anasi's words, it's a very expensive uh, price to pay for integrity and honesty. But I can pay that price. There's a Roman play called Medea by Seneca. So this is a poet who is responding to Euripides, who knows Euripides. He has a quite a different answer to the question, why does she do it? One of the things that he does is to make her aware that she is Medea, that she is part of a tradition in which Medea kills her children. And she speaks about herself in the third person all the time, where she says, you know, should I do this? What am I doing? Medea does this. This is what Medea does. And there's, there's such consciousness of the fact that this is how Medea is now defined. And she really leans into that role, and Seneca really highlights that awareness. Answer to the question, why does Medea kill her children? Because that's who Medea is. She becomes the symbol of women who kill their children. Wow, that's really interesting. That's kind of meta, you know, I mean, it's, and that's sort of a tautology. Medea kills her children because Medea kills her children. But that's really digging into what myth is, right? That myth myth is really these stories about individuals where there is lots of room for variation and for change, but that there's a hard line of continuity or there is something essential. And for Medea, it becomes Medea is the woman who kills her children. And that is what her myth is. So in answer to the question, do we have free will, the Greek answer is, well, yes and no, right? I think that's right, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So part of Medea's story is that it's out of her hand. Well, certainly Medea is in in this terrible position, right? And certainly the extent to which she is making a choice and the extent to which she is feeling 
these emotions that are so overwhelming and so beyond her really explores the extent to which this is a choice and the extent to which this is a necessary course of action. And all of those lines connect. Medea kills because Medea kills. People are sinful because people are sinful. It's a bind if you believe in fate. But the way out may be to recognize fate and find some wiggle room and choose as far as you can not to sin again. Tough lessons for those who prefer to ignore history, a long history of what people, regular people, just like you and me, like Jason and Medea, are capable of doing. There's a social historical angle too. What do we do about colonialism, residential schools, the legacy of slavery, Jim Crow? You start by not pretending these things never happened. One of the things I think tragedy does very well, and it's extraordinary given the numbers of centuries that have passed, is to continue to help us to address and explore global issues of concern. And that doesn't require us to do that much to the text. I actually think that in 5th century Athens, there was a very, very great interest in thinking through the nature of ethnicity and thinking through the nature of power and thinking through how you interact culturally, not just with barbarian states, but also with other Greek states. I think these are dynamic, living texts. In the 1963 film, Zeus and the gods of Olympus have the last word. And the word is, the story doesn't end. It simply keeps going. For the moment, let them enjoy a calm sea, a fresh breeze and each other. The girl is pretty and I was always sentimental. But for Jason, there are other adventures. I have not yet finished with Jason. You are listening to Worst Marriage Ever, the story of Jason and Medea by contributor Tom Jokinen. Special thanks to Connor Heaney and Vanessa Harryhausen at the Ray and Diana Harryhausen Foundation. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer of Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. Nikola Lukšić is the senior producer. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly, and I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.